0: This episode is brought to you by Knotgrass History, creators of Homeschool History. Regardless of where your child goes to school, Homeschool History helps you find kid-friendly books, videos, games, websites, and virtual field trips related to history, geography, and government. Whether you want to learn more about the topics covered in the past in The Curious or explore something completely different, Homeschool History will save you time and enhance learning for your child. Access this web-based app on any device, bookmark resources in your own custom groups, and share your ratings and reviews with other parents. Start searching today at homeschoolhistory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Past and the Curious. This is episode 55, and my name is Mick Sullivan, and I'm so glad that you have joined us today, whatever day you're listening to this episode. I have to thank my good friend, my old, old friend, Joe Burchett for his help with this episode. There's a lot of science in this episode and I am not a scientist and I would never pretend to be. So I had to get his help uh, to understand it and to make sure that I got it right. Joe is actually an assistant professor in the astronomy department at at New Mexico State University. So thanks to Dr. Joe Burchett and thanks to you for tuning in. I hope you like space tales or tales of people who look into space and how they do. So we're going to hear about Edwin Hubble, some of his pre-astronomy career and also about a remarkable new telescope, at least new at the time. Let's do this, y'all. Dr. James Naismith is said to have invented the game of basketball in Massachusetts in 1891. The next year, not far away in Connecticut, another sport took a big leap forward when a man named (coughs) Pudge Heffelfinger became the first person to officially get paid actual money to play for an American football team. Soon after Mr. Pudge Heffelfinger's rise to somewhat stardom as the first professional athlete, Each of these sports grew in popularity on college campuses. But while football grew in popularity, it also grew violent. By the early 1900s, there were so many gruesome injuries, and worse, that it was almost banned entirely. President Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore, uh, oh right, sorry, Theodore Roosevelt, had to get involved. Schools were canceling their programs, and more importantly, mothers would not let their kids play the game. One of these naysaying moms was Virginia Hubble. She pleaded with her son, Edwin Powell Hubble, not to run basically helmetless at full speed into also basically helmetless heads of other college students. He listened to his mom and when he graduated, he hung up his dinky non-protective helmet. This was a good thing because he was carrying around what would be one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century in his head. He didn't need to go smashing that incredible brain into the rock-hard craniums of other kids. Curiously, old mama Hubble didn't make him stop boxing. Apparently, Edwin was a really great boxer, and he continued his pugilistic pursuits through college. But when Edwin Hubble enrolled in school at the University of Chicago, he was planning to honor his father's wishes and be a lawyer. Though lawyering wasn't really what made his heart sing. What did make his heart sing were the stars in the sky and basketball. He indulged himself in astronomy and math courses and was a star in the science program, which probably wouldn't have been much use to him in the court of law. Of course, he'd worry about that in grad school, he figured. For now, when he was not thinking about the heavens, he was playing the forward position on the basketball court for the University of Chicago Maroons. His team had an amazing three-year run. In 1907, 1908, and 1909, they were crowned as the national champions. Now, Edwin Hubble had been born in Missouri, but his insurance executive father moved the big family to a suburb of Chicago where he went to grade school. On his birthday one year, his grandfather let the young boy stay up late and he showed him the stars through a small telescope that he would set up in the darkness of a pasture. Later, one of his teachers happened to be the mother of an astronomer. She was able to share lots of interesting things that she had learned from her son with young Edwin. Both of those moments and people made an impression and were an inspiration to Edwin Hubble. But despite his interests, his father would not allow him to become an astronomer. So, after his sporting career and science excellence in high school and college, he earned a scholarship to study law at Oxford in England in 1910. He was a good student, but it wasn't really thrilling for him. At least the classes weren't. He loved exploring Europe, and he wanted to please his father, so he stuck it out. While he was across the Atlantic, his family moved to Shelbyville, Kentucky, because the elder Mr. Hubble was tired of the city and wanted to raise the remaining children in a more rural environment. But not long after the move, his dad fell sick and soon passed away. Edwin felt it was his responsibility to join the family in Kentucky to help care for the siblings. They moved to nearby Louisville, and Edwin took a job across the river in New Albany, Indiana. Each morning, he'd walk in the front door of New Albany High School and teach science and Spanish to the eager student body. And to indulge his deepest interests, he led an astronomy club, and he also coached the basketball team. In fact, in 1914, he coached that team to an undefeated regular season and a third-place finish in the state tournament. His students seemed to love him, but he had other dreams, and the loss of his father did open up some opportunities for him. See, Edwin no longer felt the need to be a lawyer. He headed back north and got a job working at the Yerkes Observatory, which was operated by his alma mater. University of Chicago. When Yerkes was founded and led by an astronomer named George Ellery Hale in 1897, the observatory had one of, if not the most impressive telescope in the world. With its 40-inch lens, it was the largest refracting telescope anywhere. But in astronomy, at this time, things got bigger and better quickly. And by the time Edwin came strolling in, Mr. Hale was gone. I don't want to sound like a Jerky's, but... Yerkes just isn't working for me, you turkeys. I'm heading to Califerkes." He didn't say that. While Hale was in Mount Wilson, California, having interstellar fun with his new 60-inch telescope, Edwin Hubble was making the best of Hale's leftovers and beginning important research on nebula. These clusters of stars puzzled astronomers, but while Edwin was working on understanding them, he learned some new things that had been discovered and shared by another scientist. This new knowledge determined that the nebula that scientists had been studying were actually in motion. They were moving away from the sun, not just hanging out like a dirty sock on the floor. This was very important information to Edwin. He worked so hard that soon he was invited to Hales Mount Wilson to work harder. And in addition to the 60 inch telescope, they now had a new 100 inch telescope. Now you or I might not be able to imagine what a difference this would make in what we could see but Edwin sure could, and he was terribly excited about it. Now, he got sidetracked by World War I, for which he enlisted, but as soon as he was done, he stopped in Chicago for long enough to kiss his mother, seriously, like half a day and he was out, and then he headed to California. Here he worked so late and so long that he was almost as permanent of a fixture as the giant telescope itself. Cold clear nights were best for observing, but that brought a hazard to the job. Um, is anyone here? Can can someone help me? It seems that my face is frozen to the telescope. Anybody? Okay, we're gonna have to do this on our own. We got this. Come on, Edwin. You're an Ed winner. Don't be an Edweenie. weenie. Oh, I might lose some eyelashes here. Oh boy. <clears throat> You see, eyes water when it's cold, and an astronomer's tears would collect on the eyelashes, which would then freeze to the eyepiece and freeze the astronomer to the telescope. It was a small sacrifice to make, really. Before long, Hubble made a startling discovery about a famous nebula known as the Andromeda Nebula. He based a lot of his research on another astronomer's work who used pictures that these great telescopes had taken. Her name was Henrietta Swan Levitt. And some of her discoveries led Hubble to his eventual conclusion that the Andromeda Nebula was not in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, as everyone had thought. This proved two things. One, that there are many galaxies in the universe, and two, that the universe is expanding. To understand the basics of this, Hubble would often draw things on a partially inflated balloon and then blow it up showing how everything was moving farther away from its center. This even helped prove Einstein's theory of relativity, for which Hubble got a really nice thank you note from Mr. Einstein himself. These discoveries may well have been the most important leap that humans have made in hundreds of years. It literally changed the way that scientists have thought since then. So before long, he was world famous. Some people say Hubble was the most important astronomer since Galileo, And that guy lived 400 years before Hubble ever got frozen to an eyepiece. So that's saying something. Meanwhile, Hale wasn't done with his plans for bigger telescopes. He had an idea for a new observatory at Mount Palomar, California. It will be my greatest creation. My wildest dream come true. A telescope that is not 100 inches. Not 150 not 195, 96, 97, 98, or 199 inches, but 200 inches. Think of what we can see! Oh, Hubble could think about it all right. This was a game changer that excited Hubble to no end. But World War II got in his way, and not to mention the telescope's way. More on that in the next half of the episode. Anyway, Hubble hoped that he would be put in charge of this new telescope, and his feelings were hurt when he wasn't. Kinda bummed, the people around him luckily reminded him that he was not an administrator, he was an astronomer, a really good one. The best thing that he could do is just use it and help people learn more. And that's what he did. Sadly, his health failed soon thereafter and in 1953, Edwin Hubble passed away. Much to his chagrin, he never won the Nobel Prize that he so desired. There has never actually been an award for astronomy, only for science, and competing against all the other scientists in all of the other fields in one of the most dramatic periods of knowledge and technological advancement, was a tall order. Perhaps more fittingly, the incredible space telescope, which has produced so many images that have captivated our imaginations and continues to yield transformational scientific insights, is named after him. Astronomers on Earth use the Hubble Space Telescope to see and learn more about the universe than Hubble himself could have even imagined. It's no Nobel, but this probably would satisfy the former basketball star if he knew it.
1: Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today.
0: Well, everybody, here comes Josie and Ella from Portland, Oregon, with You Have 30 Seconds.
2: I'm Ella. And I'm Josie. We want to tell you the weird story of Oregon's exploding whale. In 1970, a 45-foot whale washed up on the beach near Florence, Oregon. They decided to blow it up. They thought it would explode it into such tiny pieces that seagulls would clean it up. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. Chunks of dead whale rained down on people. A car was smashed. Oregon definitely learned what not to do with the beach whale.
0: <laughs> Josie and Ella, hats off. Uh, gruesome story, yeah, but you put the catchphrase in. I didn't see that one coming. Great job. Thank you for sending that and really tickling my funny bone. So, if you have a, you have thirty seconds. Then uh, you can find details on what to do at thepastandthecurious.com. You have thirty seconds to tell us a story, and you can just record it on a like a phone or an iPad or something, and email it to us. But there's instructions online as well.
2: It's quiz time! It's quiz time! It's quiz time! Time! Time!
0: That's right, it is a space quiz, and it is question number one. Though he did not have a telescope, Tycho Brahe was a wildly important astronomer in the 1500s. Do you know, or perhaps remember if you listened to our episode featuring Tycho Brahe, which part of his body did he lose in a duel? Of course, our episode on Tycho Brahe was a fun one, and you may remember, or you may not, that he actually lost his nose in a duel. He actually wore a metal replacement for much of his life. Was it gold? Was it silver? Was it something else? Well, we're just not sure. Okay, question number two. Tycho died in 1601, and just seven years later, the telescope was patented. He really missed out on that one. Anyway, in which country do you think the telescope was first patented? It's not actually clear if Hans Lippershey was the first to invent the telescope, but he filed for the first patent in the Netherlands. So we have the Dutch to thank for that first magnified view of the heavens. Okay, question number three. Edwin Hubble is not the only person famous for something besides sports who also had a successful career in athletics. Do you know which American president was actually the starting center on Michigan's football team and won two football national championships? The Wolverines won the title in 1932 and 1933, And one of their stars was Gerald Ford, who would be president from 1974 to 1977. He actually had the chance to play professional football, but chose law school instead. Also worth noting, Abraham Lincoln is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame for his wrestling successes during his youth. Monkey Run is an unusual name for a creek, and Monkey Run has a bad habit of flooding. In July of 1935, it was flooding along with the Chemung River and pretty much everything else in Corning, New York, thanks to endless days of heavy storms. But this flood was a problem of national importance because the most important piece of technological equipment in America was baking in a giant oven right there. Electricity was pretty new for powering factories, and it was not very dependable. When the fire department and citizens of Corning found out that the Monkey Run flood could knock out the power and damage this valuable new creation, they came together to do everything they could to protect it and the machinery its creation depended on. So what was it they were so eager to protect? Oh, well, it was the largest piece of glass made in the history of the world. A few years before the Monkey Run flood, the gears in George Ellery Hale's head were turning. Three times in his life, he had created the largest telescope in the world. First, there was the 40-inch refractor at Yerkes, which brought the heavens a little closer back in 1897. A refractor telescope uses two lenses, sort of like one side of a pair of binoculars. The objective lens, the bigger one at the end, is convex and the curve collects the light rays and bends them to a focal point. The other lens is the eyepiece, which makes all of this visible to your eye. The Yerkes refractor is still the largest refractor telescope in the world, but there are limitations with this type of telescope. First, think of telescopes as light buckets, where a bigger bucket will collect more photons and enable us to see fainter and fainter objects. Well, refractors require that large objective lens be made of glass. Remember, that's the big one at the top. These are extremely difficult to manufacture with sufficient quality. Plus, these lenses are heavy, and they must be supported at the end of a long lever arm. This adds another difficulty when supporting and controlling precisely all of this weight. So with some of these limitations in mind, and plenty of opportunity out west, Hale, as you might recall, bid adieu to the turkeys and yurkeys for the west coast. He then focused on reflector telescopes, which use a curved mirror to collect light rays and reflect them to an eyepiece that a human can see easily. These are more efficient to make in larger sizes, so Hale worked to have one built with a 60-inch mirror on Mount Wilson in Pasadena in 1908. The bigger the telescope, the more the scientists could see and discover. This led to more understanding. So, in 1917, Hale again outdid himself by coordinating the creation of the Hooker Telescope. With its 100-inch mirror, more of the universe than ever could be seen and analyzed. It was this telescope that our old pal Edwin Hubble was working on when he began to pester Hale. The Hooker Telescope was not perfect. First off, it was near Los Angeles, which was growing in population. More people meant more light. More light? it was harder for the telescope to do its job because the light from the earth interfered with what we could see. This is called light pollution, and it's why you see so many more stars in the sky the further away you get from a city. But also, mirrors like this are made of glass topped with a layer of aluminum, and the 100-inch glass on the Hooker telescope was actually many layers of glass on top of one another. This was not very stable, There's too much fluctuation in the shape of the glass. So when the weather changed, like if it went from one of those freeze your face to the telescope type of cold nights to the warmth of a nice spring day, the glass changed too. And this warped the image that the scientists would see. A glass lens needs to be completely stable and the bigger one gets, the less stable it is, especially when it's made out of layers of glass.
2: George.
0: What is it, Mr. Hubble? The telescope's broken. Have you frozen your face to the telescope again? God, no! I didn't freeze my- no! It's just all weebly wobbly! Look, it is not broken. It's just not perfect. But I want a perfect one! We all do, Edwin. We all do. Maybe Hale's gears got turning to keep Edwin Hubble from pestering him. But more likely, it was his other three telescopes that led him to his next creation. He realized every time we make a larger telescope, we discover new things that we could not see before. So why stop now? His new dream was a round, 200-inch mirror that would be like no other hunk of glass in history. Nothing like this had ever been attempted, and if successful, it would be twice the size of the largest telescope in the world. And if successful, it could completely open up the limits of science. A few ideas were tried, and in the end, the contract went to the Corning Glass Company in Corning, New York, because of a new advancement they made with a new recipe for glass. In fact, you probably have some of this new-at-the-time glass in your kitchen right now. It's called Pyrex. Pyrex glass, which contains borax, can be heated to extreme temperatures and not really change much at all. So in addition to being a great material for a 200-inch mirror, For a gigantic state-of-the-art telescope, it's also the ideal thing to cook casseroles and scalloped potatoes, or even brownies. Making a brownie dish, though, is completely different from making a telescope mirror. In order to get started on this 200-inch mirror, the engineers at Corning Glass would have to melt 65 tons of glass at 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. This took weeks and was incredibly dangerous. Then, once the mold that would shape the glass disc was complete, they used giant ladles to pour the red hot liquid glass inside. Each ladleful weighed 750 pounds. While making plans, Hale had told the general public about the need for such a remarkable telescope. It was the middle of the Great Depression at the time. And because of this, and because he got a gigantic grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to pay for it, everyone was intrigued. When they poured the lens, thousands of people came to see it happen. Unfortunately, that glass disc was a failure. There were some stabilizing structures in the mold, and because the liquid glass was so hot, they melted and floated up to the top, which made the gigantic glass puck useless. Well, not completely useless. Science is all about trial and error, and they learned a lot from their failed giant lens. And actually, it is still on display today in a museum there. So taking what they learned, they tried again, this time without the added pressure of an audience there to watch. The next pouring, in December of 1934, was a success, but they were still months away from knowing for sure. Glass like this needs to go through a process called annealing. The 200 inch disc, which was 25 inches thick, went into a special oven. Periodically, it would be heated to bake out any imperfections and then cooled down under great control. Each temperature change was excruciatingly slow. The people in charge would rotate so that it was never left alone, and the temperatures would be changed by a single degree at a time. And the supervisor watched it like a hawk. No one wanted to be responsible for the glass having a problem because the temperature changed too quickly. This is why the power failure caused by the flooding of Monkey Run was such a big problem. If the oven went off, that meant the glass would cool too fast, and this could mean disaster for the very special piece of glass so many people had worked so hard to create for George Ellery Hale's one-of-a-kind Great Depression-era telescope. Amazingly for them, the flood didn't ruin the glass. But they wouldn't actually know that for sure until their timer went off and they thought the glass would be done. After 10 months of slowly cooling down, one degree at a time, they opened the oven in October of 1935 to find a big, beautiful piece of glass. Perfect for a big, beautiful telescope. Now, to get it across the country, grind it into a perfect concave shape, coat it in aluminum, and install it at Mount Palomar. Easy as pie. Right? Oh, worse than right. Wrong. A special train car carried it across the country, and because of the heavy and highly valuable cargo, it never went faster than 25 miles an hour. Which makes for a long, slow trip across the American continent. At least this made it convenient for citizens to gather and watch as it went rolling by. In April of 1936, it finally arrived in California and ready for the grinding crew to grind its flat surface into a concave surface. Think of carving the flat face of a tree stump into a bird bath or a bowl. But this bowl had to be perfect. Any mistake, any imperfection would distort what a scientist saw when looking through the telescope. They knew it would take years, but they didn't count on World War II happening. The people working on this were highly skilled, and time and time again, they were needed in the war effort. And they couldn't say no to Uncle Sam. So by 1942, with World War II in full swing, the telescope project was just on hold. No progress was made for three years. It was just a large, lonely, languishing lens. Things got moving again in 1945 at the war's end, and the lens was finally perfected, given its reflective aluminum coating, and eventually installed in a telescope at Mount Palomar Observatory. In honor of the four-time biggest telescope world champion, this 200-inch behemoth was named the Hale Telescope. Silly, they didn't celebrate the dedication with a matchingly large 200-inch pizza or 200-inch cake, but I'm pretty sure they realized the mistake immediately Honestly, they'd need more than a 200-inch pizza to feed everyone who made the incredible instrument possible. Hale and Hubble get all the glory, but the reason it succeeded is because thousands of everyday people who were eager to work and celebrate science. It's important to remember that all of this began during the bleakness of the Great Depression, and it remained a work in progress throughout the uncertainty of World War II and beyond. In 1949, more than 20 years after Hale proposed the idea, Edwin Hubble took the first photographic image with the Hale telescope.
2: Oh, it's so
0: perfect. Thank you, Hale. Oh, it's the least I could do, Edwin. Actually, it wasn't perfect. It just took a little bit of a refinement though, and by the end of the year, it was as perfect as anything could be. For decades, the Hale telescope was state of the art, and today it is still a powerful, important, and heavily used telescope. Of course, there are other large telescopes now, But without question, the Hale telescope and its gigantic mirror were groundbreaking. Their impact is felt today any time an astronomer peers into the skies above with a reflector telescope. Perhaps even more so if they go home and bake a pan of brownies in their Pyrex cookware at the end of the day. It's safe to say that no other telescope has quite the story of this one. It was a long, arduous, and monumental effort made by regular folks and scientists alike to take a huge leap for science in the lows of the Great Depression. Luckily, we are still learning about the universe thanks to its creation. And I'm gonna go make some dessert. Well, all right. Episode 55 is In the Books. Thank you for joining us. This has been The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan. I have some Patreon sponsors to thank and a song to send out to two twins. Which is, you know, not three twins. Then you'd be triplets, I guess. Anyway, let's get started. Asher in Humble, Texas. Hello to you, Asher. Asher. Addie Helwig and Jenny. Jenny. Addie, thank you for listening. I'm so glad you're out there. And emmett in somerville massachusetts which is an awesome place i've spent time there really enjoyed it jake and beckett hayes what's up jake Jake. and beckett Beckett, thanks for listening also and also to you chelsea kunak thank you chelsea i'm so glad you're out there and i appreciate your support sybilla hello to you and thank you for listening and the same goes for inga Hello, Inga, thank you. And if Inga, if you're uh, an adult and you would like me to thank a kid, let me know. Or if you're an adult and you just want the thanks for yourself, that's awesome too. I, I, hey, I love it. I love it either way. And Lucy and Ellie, hello to you. I think last month I said uh, your mom's name uh, and I needed to say your name. Lucy and Ella, thank you. Okay, last but not least, I have a song for two twins, Eddie and Andy six-year-old twins who really enjoy space which is um super appropriate because of this episode so everything just worked out really well um and i decided to talk about the constellation gemini which uh, represents twins Seemed like a fitting thing to do i hope you all like the song
2: there's a constellation in the sky a pair of star formations called the gemini I don't think that name is quite right For the twins in the sky If I was the kind of guy Who got to name the stars in the sky I've got a name And I think it's a dandy It's Eddie and Andy Eddie and Andy, Andy and Eddie, if it's any consolation. Gemini, twin stars in the sky, can be your constellation. Andy and Eddie, Eddie and Andy, you don't need a space station. You'll always have a with the Gemini Constellation Bye everybody!
0: I hope you have a great month. My name is Mick Sullivan and this has been The Past and the Curious.